Okay, everybody. Um, I think we should um, probably um, try and get going. Um, we have um, one final session um, and, um, of what has been um, uh, not such a long day because it's been um, such a fascinating and engaging day. But um, um, thank you very much to, to all of you who've been here all day. Um, welcome to people who have uh, just joined us for this final session. Um, welcome to all of you who are watching a later video podcast of this um, who've joined us um, just for this part. Um, we are going to have um, four um, contributions. Um, first of all, LSE's um, uh, pro-director for research, Julia Black, is going to introduce things. I'm John Hills. I'm um, co-director of the new International Inequalities Institute. Um, then Tony Atkinson is going to talk. Some of you will have been in the audience um, 10 days ago, uh, or it's 12 days ago, when Tony launched his new book, um, Inequality, What Can Be Done, um, a book which is available in the bookshop. Um, uh, and um, also that event... Uh, apparently available secondhand already on eBay. People have <laughs> already got to the end of it. Um, um, but also I should say, um, not just for those of you watching the later video cast of this, but um, you, can in, you can actually watch um, Tony's presentation of that book um, uh, on, the, on the CASE, Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion website. Um, it will be on the Inequalities Institute website once that's up and running, but, it, but also um, the audio cast with the question and answer session is available on the LSE Events website, as um, all of today um, will be. And I should say that um, Tony's book uh, contains 15 ideas of what could be done about inequality, and he points out that as the book is, I think, 14.99, that's less than a pound an idea, is that? <laughs> um, uh, which is um, um, very helpful. Um, after that, um, I... Um, and, and um, Doubtless, um, I think there will be some people here who... Um, if you still receive emails from an internet book retailer headquartered in Luxembourg, um, you probably already have been receiving emails saying that people who bought capital in the 21st century are also buying uh, inequality, what can be done. Um, I hope, but there are other, there are other ways of acquiring books. Um, um, and then um, we will, um, uh, Tom, I will, um, will take, take the floor. So, Julia. Okay, so it, it forced me to welcome you, welcome you again. Um, and to the launch of the Inequal International Inequalities Institute. And I'm truly delighted that we've got to this stage, actually, and truly delighted that you're here with us um, today. And I want to thank uh, Thomas um, Piketty for, for joining us and for engaging so fully and openly uh, in the discussions. I haven't been able to be part of all of them, but I have been talking to people as they've been coming in and out. And, and for everybody who's been involved in this, the, the reports coming back of this has just been a fantastic day of debate, engagement, and the other great thing is that nobody has ever really agreed with anything that anybody has said so far, uh, which is, is just fantastic and exactly what we uh, should expect. But the launch of the, um, the Institute, the International Equalities Institute, comes at a really critical time in our social and economic development, and we know that debates on key social political issues get politicized very quickly, very easily, get captured by different special interest groups. 
um, and it can be very difficult to make any, any real headway beyond the, beyond the rhetoric. And so there is a real need for coherent, rational analysis and objective debate on the causes, nature and consequences of inequality um, and what we can, can do about them. And the LSE and the, the Institute is fantastically positioned, I think, to, to take that debate forward. We're a university, we do three main things. We research, we try to engage with the public in our ideas, and we teach. And so it's going to be no surprise that that's really what the Institute's going to be engaged in doing. Um, so within, for research, within the LSE, this is, this is a very important way of mobilizing our existing research interests and capacity and building on that and bringing together different people across the school who are working on inequalities, but thinking about it from different perspectives. And you will have seen some of those already today. So whether it be from the economic, the political economy, the sociological, the anthropological, and so we go on. Of ways of thinking about this um, particular issue, bringing those together to develop quite innovative research projects, we hope, and also be a, uh, a catalyst for, for galvanizing uh, research funding uh, to try and fund some of that research to support those ideas and initiatives going forward. But we also need to take our research outside of the academy, and this isn't just an internal exercise which we're doing to, to, to help our own research improve, but actually to engage with others, both other academic institutions, but also engage with the wider public, policymakers, NGOs, international institutions, private sector organizations, to actually really engage with our research and also to get them to engage with us, because it has to be a two-way exchange. That's why it's called engagement and not just uh, dissemination, okay, to really try and understand the complexities of inequalities, not just from the academic point of view, here's what we think is fantastic, so you must like it too, because we think it's brilliant, but to think about, well, what are you, what are those outside really working on? What are the key problems that they're facing, and how can we help as an academy to really tackle those issues? So we'll be doing a number of different events. There'll be a series of public lectures. There'll be a series of briefings, etc. And so you just need to keep an eye out uh, for what, what's going on. But we'll also be teaching. That's, that's core to what we do. Okay? And training basically ma essentially master's students and PhD students to really be able to engage with issues of inequality using some really rigorous analytical and methodological techniques. So we're launching a cross-disciplinary MSc program um, in inequality and also have received from the Leverhulme Foundation a million pounds to fund 15 PhD students over the next five years to train them on issues relating to inequality. Um, and the Inequalities Institute will be a key fulcrum uh, for that kind of training to develop in a really cross-disciplinary way. So this is just the beginning, um, and in the coming months and the coming years, we'll be holding, as I say, a number of different events, engagements, initiating and developing various research projects. And so I just hope that you keep in touch with us and that you just join us in building what I think is a really exciting initiative. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I think on behalf of Mike and myself and um, everybody else who's been involved in the early establishment of the Institute, um, a particular thanks to the LSE for its support um, in getting this initiative um, going. Um, now, this session um, is uh, focused on, um, in particular, on ideas around where this leaves us as far as policy is concerned. Um, so... Um, 
we're going to be, um, um, as well as giving uh, Tom a, a chance to respond to some of the general discussion we've had today, and I hope to um, some questions um, from an interaction with, with all of you. Um, but we are at a particular moment. Um, we are three days, uh, four days after um, a, a periodic chance to test the views of the British public um, on a series of issues. Um, so I thought it might be helpful if on your behalf I read all seven of the manifestos of <laughs> the main um, political parties in Great Britain. Um, I have not, I'm sorry to say, those of you watching in Northern Ireland, included Northern Ireland. Um, and I've gone through them to look and see what the parties were promising by way of actions that related to um, inequality. Um, and then, uh, in effect, what proportion of the, British, of, of the Great Britain public um, put their vote when they were voting, um, obviously not representative of the entire population, as only 67% voted, um, what, what um, policies were favoured um, or what parties' um, policies were, were favoured in this. Um, so these are colour-coded. Um, I think you can guess most of the colours. Um, the um, orange figures here, the, the, the orange in here is the Scottish National Party. The Lib Dems, when they turn up, will be in yellow. Um, um, I should say that anything coloured blue is going to happen. Um, <laughs> Um, anything purple um, may or may not happen. Um, anything green have equal representation to the, um, in Parliament to the, the purple policies. Um, so just, I've got four of these slides, um, and the proportion of the, of the voters um, supporting inequality increasing policies are um, on the right. Those um, voting for parties supporting um, inequality reducing policies are on the left. And in a way, this is about putting a challenge both to Tony and his 15 um, areas for policy development and to Toma um, and his proposals at the end of the book for things like a global wealth tax. Um, so, um, as you will see, about 40% um, of the population um, voted for abolishing um, non-DOM status that protects some particularly fortunate um, well-off people who have graves in other countries um, marked out for them um, from taxation. Um, you will see that 51% of the voters voted for parties that are going to reduce inheritance tax, or in the case of UKIP would have abolished inheritance tax. Um, that's by raising the in inheritance ta tax threshold to £1 million is the, um, the policy of the new government. Um, some consolation for Tony that 3.8% of voters supported a party which believes in an accessions tax, lifetime accessions tax. Um, a rather larger proportion of people wanted to voted for parties that would make the local taxation system council tax more progressive. Um, and um, uh, again, the same 3.8% um, uh, were supporting a party which believed in an annual wealth tax um, or a global wealth tax. Moving on, thinking about direct taxes... Um, there were explicit um, policies to reduce the tax on the top 1% in the manifesto favoured by 13% of voters. Um, but again, policies increased um, income tax allowances um, in the manifestos of both Conservative and Party and UKIP. That's a majority. Um, and including the... Um, sorry, those are tax rates. And then including 
um, increased tax allowances, which most of the benefits of which go to the top um, half. Um, that was um, about 60% of the population, including there the people voting for the Liberal Democrats. But also I've put down here um, the promises um, in some cases to be put in legislation now um, by the new government, but, um, but put, I'm not sure this one was actually put, it chiselled in, in, in words on the tombstone um, that was favoured by the Labour Party. But the policy of not increasing any of the... Of, direct rates of tax, income tax, national insurance contributions, or indeed VAT, in effect in a situation where we have a deficit and where we have increased pressure on public spending through ageing, effectively leaves the government, as it would have been or as it is now going to be, uh, with no option but to find less, to have to find regressive ways of meeting those gaps or those extra calls. Um, there was um, quite a, a um, more than 40% of the population did vote for parties that were supporting higher taxes on the top, direct taxes on the top 1%, but they were um, less than um, those voting the other way, of course. Um, then as far as uh, Social Security benefits are concerned, um, the governing party is committed to a cut of 10% in all um, out of uh, all working age benefits. If it all comes out of that's a £12 billion cut, which has, has yet been unspecified where it's going to come from, um, that could either mean uh, a 10% cut in all the benefits and tax credits going to all people of working age, including child benefit, um, child tax credit, and so on, or it could mean simply a cut of a third in the amount that is paid to people who are out of work, whether they're unemployed, lone parents, um, or sick or disabled. Um, equally, we know there will be a cut um, in the um, real um, value of working age benefits unless the rate of inflation um, remained at zero. On the other hand, virtually everybody um, um, favours um, state pensions growing faster um, than earnings. Pensions are, pensioners are currently slightly less well off uh, than the population as a whole, so I guess that is inequality reducing. I haven't put um, the Green Party in there, um, but they probably would be. They just said that they would have a much higher pension level. Um, and indeed, the, um, the, the Green Party was also committed to doubling child benefit and to introducing a citizen's income, one of Tony's favorite ideas, in the long run, not immediately. Um, and then, um, finally, um, what about um, some other things, benefits and pay? Um, in terms of constraining pay levels overall within companies, um, high pay limits, that was only something favoured by people voting for the Greens. Um, higher minimum wage, um, I haven't put the Conservatives in there because I'm not quite sure how the, the promise of minimum wage uh, relates to where inflation would have taken, taken us to. Um, the one um, policy on this slide where there was a very large proportion of people voting in favour, it was um, abolition of the um, so-called bedroom tax, the extra charge on social tenants um, who have um, fewer than the, de the correct number of people for the house or flat they're occupying. Um, as you'll see, 65%, um, nearly two-thirds of people voted for parties, including UKIP, that were promising that. Um, however, you'll see conspicuous by its absence is a blue bar um, within that. So I guess that is not necessarily going to happen. Um, and then to my mind, um, a slight surprise, given the kind of... Um, hardship which re recent changes to council tax benefits have, have made um, the idea of re restoring full local tax benefits to people um, with no other income 
um, was something that only the um, Scottish National Party and the Greens um, were talking about. Um, I think you may have noticed um, that there were um, quite a, a lot of um, votes for policies towards the right of these diagrams that have the effect of increasing inequality. Um, and there was conspicuous absence of blue bars um, apart from um, pensions to the left of this. Um, and I think that puts um, the challenge I was suggesting to, um, um, to Tony and to Toma on um, where do we go from here? Thank you very much, uh, John. Uh, when you first sent me the slides, uh, I was not too bothered. Um, that's because I'm colorblind. <laughs> uh, but now, now you've spilt out the full significance. I am uh, wondering if I should go home. Um, however, um, starting a session about uh, policy without referring to the election is obviously... Uh, not very sensible. Um, but I'm going to start not by talking about the manifestos, um, but talking about inequality uh, and the media in the election. And I think the relationships of the media and its uh, effect on the outcome of the election are something we're going to hear more about in the time of, uh, in the future. Having done that, I'm going to spend some time talking about the challenges for the economics profession in terms of analyzing inequality. Uh, I'm going to say something about the role of different actors in reducing inequality. And finally, is it the, the wrong time, as I've just mentioned, to discuss policies in this area? Now, the, I think, general opinion of the general election campaign was that it was extremely uninspiring. Uh, that it made little or no contact with the issues with which people were concerned or the big issues which face this country. And this is a considerable extent, I think, the responsibility of the politicians who remained very firmly within their comfort zone and didn't venture out to discuss any interesting ideas outside it. But I think it's also very much the responsibility of the media they did very little, as far as I could judge, to broaden the debate. And as I'll tell you in just a moment, I have personal experience that they actually deliberately acted to prevent alternative views being discussed. They succeeded in closing down the agenda. And this, I think, certainly applies to inequality, a topic which I think many people thought would feature quite a lot in the election debate. But this was not the case. And just to test this out, my colleague Max Rosa in Oxford produced the following graph. He looked at the number of occasions, the number of sentences per day in the UK printed press in which the word inequality appeared. And you can see it starts in 2012, when it was about five times, it says five times a day it would appear. And then it increased in 2000, towards the end of 2013, 2014. That is the Piketty effect. <laughs> but you can also see 
that there was no evident further increase during the 2015 election campaign, which began on the 30th of March. The graph goes up to the beginning of May. So if anyone tries to claim that Labour lost the election by talking too much about inequality, then I think this provides at least some suggestion that that, isn't, that wasn't the case. If they did talk about it, then it didn't lead to any increase in press coverage. And as I said, uh, speaking personally, and we've heard earlier today the importance of, as it were, of individual narrative as well as statistics, um, it was this period in which, as John had just said, I produced the book called Inequality of What Can Be Done, with certainly the hope that that would encourage a wider debate about the options that were open. To this end, the publishers approached a number of media outlets, and it led to an agreement with one newspaper that in exchange for giving them exclusive access, that is, they could have the first as they were, coverage of it, they would run an interview discussing the different policies which by which inequality could be reduced. And the journalist visited me at home and wrote his piece, but it was then rejected by the editor on the grounds, I understand, that he did not like the economic message. <laughs> in this way, he succeeded not only in preventing any discussion of the proposals that I put forward, but also blocked coverage in other newspapers. Well, what should they have been discussing? Here I'm just going to give one example which leads to one of the particular 15 proposals that I put forward in the book. Much of the election was conducted in the shadow of the deficit, of the need to restore the UK public finances. But that discussion was remarkably narrow. It focused on the deficit and the debt, but did not give us an overall picture of the position, fiscal position of the state. To do that, one has to look not just at liabilities, but also at assets. And that's what the second slide shows. And it's always seemed to me rather absurd that we talk about the national debt on its own without considering what the state owns. It's a bit like saying to someone, well, you, you've got a large mortgage, but ignoring the fact that they also own a house. And this figure here shows you not quite a complete picture, but a fairly complete picture of the net worth, that is, assets minus liabilities, and it's an updated version of an analysis that John Hills carried out, I think, in the 1980s or so, some, some time ago. Uh, and you can see that it tells a somewhat sad story. It shows a story where the net worth of the state in Britain, from being negative after the war, steadily increased up until the end of the 1970s. So at the end of the 1970s, the public sector's net worth, which obviously can be debated about how that's actually measured, but it's broadly a measure of the value of all the assets the state owns, less the national debt and other liabilities, but not, I should say, pension liabilities. But that net worth was then about 75-80% of national income. Then it fell very dramatically until the end of the 1990s. And you'll see the same thing happened in the United States, where I've taken Thomas figures with Gabriel Zuckman. And the net worth of the state is relevant because it affects not just the fiscal position of the state, 
but also it affects the distribution of income and wealth. Of course, an important part of the reduction in the net worth of the state was due to the sale of local authority housing at discounted prices. I think the current value of that would be about £200 billion. Now, that certainly increased the wealth of people not in the top 1%, but in the next group down, the middle wealth group. But that was obviously not equally shared. And we're seeing today, again due to the work of case researchers, for example, here at the LSE, the widening gap there is between owner-occupiers and tenants, which was intensified by this process of privatisation. And, of course, the fact that the state's balance sheet is so unfavourable is one of the reasons why the government is unable to finance an adequate level of social transfers. That's why I proposed in the book the establishment of a sovereign wealth fund, an idea which I should point out has been espoused by Boris Johnson, so that's that's an example of bipartisan approach. (laughs) If we had established a sovereign wealth fund when North Sea Oil came on stream and followed the policy of the Norwegians of investing that in a fund, that today would allow annual spending by the government of some £14 billion, which would have rather changed the election debate. And rather than having to look for £13 billion worth of cuts, the government would have this fund, if they had been in the past, more fiscally responsible. Because the money from privatisation was not, as you can see, invest, used to retire the national debt. It was very largely used to cut the rates of income tax. But this, of course, is something about which I, see, I saw no reference in the discussion. We were constantly reminded in the press that the national debt had risen under Labour after 2007, and you can see the fall in net worth that took place then. But we were never told that it was under a previous Conservative government from 1979 to 1997, that the fiscal position of the state was so seriously weakened. That was my first point. Now, debts and deficits are the territory of macroeconomics, and I'm sorry I couldn't be here this morning for the session on economics. But I want to talk briefly about the engagement with the economics profession. In 1920, Hugh Dalton later Chancellor of the Exchequer, said that as a student at the LSE, he had been especially interested in the distribution of income. And he then went on to say, I gradually noticed, however, that most theories of distribution were almost wholly concerned with distribution as between factors of production. He said the distribution as between persons, a problem of more direct and obvious interest, was either left out of the textbooks altogether or treated so briefly as to suggest it raised no question which could not be answered either by generalisations about production functions or by plodding statistical investigations which professors of economic theory were content to leave to lesser men. He said men. Nowadays, he might have said differently. Now, this neglect is still visible today in the allocation of space in introductory economics textbooks. If you look at the best-selling textbooks, you'll see that there is indeed usually, as for example in Greg Mankey's book, a very good, well-set-out chapter on income inequality and poverty. But it's quite separate from the 
other chapters in the book. Also telling in that case is that when Greg came to produce the essentials of economics, compressing the book into a single volume, the inequality chapter does not make the cut. The criterion he'd used was to emphasize the material that students should and do find interesting about the study of economics, and apparently inequality does not qualify. Now, I think the challenge, and Julia talked earlier about the Institute having a teaching element as well as research and dissemination elements, I think the challenge is to integrate the distributional dimension into the mainstream of economics. And it's this challenge that Thomas took on so magnificently in Capital in the 21st century. He managed to combine the fruits of plodding statistical investigations, and there's a fair amount of plodding, as, as you and I both know, from producing the, behind many of the numbers, even one number on his graphs, there's a great deal of work, to combine that with the high flights of economic theory. And whatever one view one takes, and I wasn't here for the discussion this morning, he succeeded wonderfully, I think, in attracting the attention of the economics profession and getting them to think about these issues. Now, building on this, I'd like to consider the implications for the new International Inequalities Institute, and in particular, how to embed the study of inequality into the foundations of economics. And in my view, it should not be so much through a separate course or a separate lecture within a course, but to be present from the outset. And classical economists started from a world of workers, landlords, and capitalists, because these were the actors that were important in explaining the economy which they were observing. And so in the same way, I think we should start, as it were, from page one, with different groups of the population, the top 1%, perhaps, although I agree with Mike Savage that maybe that's not the most useful grouping, but some grouping like that, a middle-income group of, say, of owner-occupiers and a bottom group of tenants. And each of these has different endowments of capital and labor, and each is affected differently by changes in wage levels, rates of interest, rates of growth, rates of profit. What's more, I think the state should be introduced from the start providing the legal framework and context within which the economy operates, not introduced later as somehow correcting the market economy, since the market economy simply wouldn't function without the existence of the state. So these are some of the sorts of things which I think, obviously some of these kind of ideas are being built into the core undergraduate curriculum being developed by Wendy Carlin and colleagues as part of the INET, but I'm suggesting perhaps this is something which could be perhaps at the graduate level uh, counterpart of that kind of development. In the same way, I think we need to reconsider the role of different actors in making policy. At the moment, attention is naturally focused on the national government in the case of the UK. But one of the themes of my book is that combating inequality is not solely the responsibility of national governments. Certainly, much of the heavy lifting may fall to them, but action does not only concern the national government, which I suppose is slightly reassuring for the 63% of UK voters who did not choose the present government. Now, what does that mean? First of all, the approach adopted is relevant to all levels of government, from local to multinational. 
from Oxford City Council to the European Union to the World Bank. In the case of the UK, there's obviously good reasons to expect the devolved governments, particularly in Scotland, to adopt a different approach from that forthcoming in the United Kingdom. In particular, there's scope for action to change the distribution of pre-tax, pre-transfer income, as again was stressed in my book, and as you will have seen from John's list, was not very much stressed in the case of the manifestos. There's a minimum wage, but not much else. And indeed, in some cases, action may be most appropriate at the local level, since, for example, in things like developing employment programs, uh, the local governments may have a much more crucial role to play. But nor are governments the sole actors. It's individuals who will ultimately determine much of what happens. And there are many ways in which this can happen. And here I'm picking up on a theme which uh, Lisa McKenzie referred to this, this morning about new and innovative ways in which people are seeking to influence what happens uh, outside the mainstream political uh, area. And it means that we can act individually in many different respects. We can act individually, obviously, as consumers. Consumers make a difference by buying from suppliers who are paying a living wage or whose products are fair trade. Individuals acting on their own or collectively make a difference by supporting local shops and enterprises. Savers can ask about the salary policy pursued by their shareholder-owned bank. As I stressed in the book, market forces may limit the range of market outcomes, but they leave room within those limits for other concerns to come into play, such as fairness and a sense of social justice. In this regard, the new III, if that's the right way to talk about it, uh, should perhaps look inward as well as outward. We should be self-critical. And I'm sure in many respects the LSE's record is a, a good one. I noticed, for example, the LSE has for some time been signed up to the living wage campaign, something which Oxford University has only last month signed up to. But there are questions which can be asked more broadly about pay policy within an institution. In the final slide, I've shown you the distribution of salaries <laughs> paid in this institution, upwards from £100,000 a year. £100,000 which is around four times the living wage, in which calculation I've assumed that LSE professors work 60 hours a week. I'm sure it may, not, may be, not be an underestimate. And from this you can see the fitted Pareto curve. Uh, I've used here the inverse Pareto coefficient since I know that uh, Thomas likes inequality indices that go up when inequality goes up. And that's what this does, unlike the usual Pareto coefficient. And you can see that it has indeed, between 2010 and 2014, gone up a little. It's still well below the corresponding Oxford figure, which is 1.4. Now, this uh, preliminary examination uh, suggests a possible research project for the new institute. Uh, these are publicly available data. 
And uh, you could do a comparative study of English universities, for example, to see what contribution they've made to increasing inequality. Or if you're statistically minded, you could find a better fit to the distribution than the Pareto, which doesn't seem to fit terribly well. But the point I'm making is that in our everyday lives, we also, I think, play some role in affecting the levels of inequality. Now, this session is about policy, not research, and people may have felt after last Thursday that perhaps this seminar was uh, beside the point. I'm not going to try to rise to that challenge that John made me, but I would point out that the title of the Institute is International Institute for Inequalities, and indeed the purpose of my writing my book was not simply for the UK audience in 2015. <clears throat> I think it's fair to say that around the world, judging by the response, both to Thomas's book and then to my own, is that there is a very deep-seated concern about this issue, a concern which, if anything, seems to be increasing. And just as one piece of evidence, I've been struck by the shift in the US coverage of the book by book. In the first piece, which was in the New Yorker in March, uh, they said, it, they said, they were quite generous about it, but said, basically, this is uh, not very relevant, in the United States, most of his proposals are non-starters. No matter how many times you hear the word inequality on Meet the Press. However, recently, more recently, six weeks later, the New York Times stated that Republicans are now speaking up. The United States is beset by a crisis of inequality. Who said that? Senator Mike Lee of Utah, a Republican with Tea Party support. They quoted the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who declared recently that we have to do a better job of curbing inequality. <laughs> One feels in that case maybe he is himself able to do something about it. <laughs> but uh, in this respect, I think that the creation of this institute may in fact turn out to be very timely. Thank you very much. Well, thanks a lot. Let, let me first say how glad I am to be here today, in particular to talk about Tony's book. And, and I guess the main message I would like to, to, to send today is, you know, you should read this book. This is really, uh, this is a great book. Uh, uh, I think, you know, maybe many of you probably know this, but uh, Tony uh, is, uh, in a way, the... the godfather of uh, all uh, modern uh, inequality uh, studies. You know, I think there are two, uh, in my view, there are two, two big names in uh, sort of promoting the development of uh, uh, studies and inequality uh, in the past century, let's say it, you know, which are Simon Kuznets and Tony Atkinson. So Simon Kuznets in the 1950s wrote the first major historical study on income inequality, used for the first time uh, the historical data from the U.S. income tax and the U.S. national accounts, which he was also a pioneer in, in U.S. national accounts, and for the first time he constructed uh, historical series. Uh, uh, for, it was only for one country, 
uh, for the U.S. and for a 40-year, in fact, 35-year long period from 1913 to 1948, but this was the first time it happened. And, and Tony has been pushing this much further, in particular uh, uh, through many, many books uh, over uh, almost half a century now. And uh, I, I, I met, I first met Tony at the middle of this uh, half century uh, in 1991-1992, uh, so almost 25 years ago as a student at LSE. Uh, and, uh, and Tony had already written a lot and has kept uh, writing a, a lot. And I just want to single out, uh, you know, one relatively old book of Tony uh, published in 1978 on, uh, called Distribution of Personal Wealth in Britain, which looks at the history of wealth inequality in Britain using historical inheritance tax statistics from the 1920s up to the 1970s. And this was really pushing the Kuznets agenda even further. First, because uh, Tony was looking at the history of wealth inequality in this book and not only income inequality. And also, I think, because there was a much better already in this book, a much better articulation between empirical data and theories that in Kuznets. Well, in the 1950s, you didn't have uh, Excel, you didn't have... So the book by Kuznets was like a long uh, statistical appendix, whereas uh, uh, Tony's book uh, is able to, uh, to present the data and at the same time to, to, to present the, the, the interpretation for, for the historical findings, the discussion of the theory. And, and Tony has been pushing this, uh, this uh, uh, agenda further in the in the following decades up until today of trying to articulate theory with empirical work in a way which uh, you know, nobody else has, uh, has, has, has done. And, and uh, you know, if you look at the list of Nobel Prize winners in economics, you know, I think Tony should have received the Nobel Prize many times by this standard. And, uh, but, you know, uh, sometimes uh, the dominant opinion among economists is not... Uh, it's not, uh, it's not the right one, but this might, uh, this might change. Anyway, uh, so what's really great about this book, this particular book, is that uh, uh, Tony uh, is taking, I think, more risks than he used to. So Tony is often very cautious, you know, in, in his uh, more academic writing. So he gives a chance to every argument and, and he's always very cautious in, this, in his conclusion, which is certainly a good thing, uh, uh, especially in a profession where sometimes people, uh, you know, are not particularly uh, cautious about anything. Uh, uh, but at the same time, you don't, you don't want to be cautious all the time. At some point, you need to take a stand. And, and this is what Tony does in this book, where he, he formulates a number of proposals uh, about uh, uh, you know, fiscal reform in the UK, but also reform of the uh, labor market through a guaranteed scheme uh, uh, for employment at the minimum wage, uh, f a proposal about the capital market, the saving market with a national uh, uh, fund for uh, saving uh, uh, with a, a, a return a guarantee for rate of return on, on low and middle uh, saving. So these are really proposals that go at the heart of the working of the labor market, the capital market. So it's not only redistribution, it's really an articulation between redistribution and pre-distribution, although Tony would not like uh, this word and would not use it, but, but uh, uh, this is really what he's doing, in, I think, in a very, very deep manner. So le let me just take a number of issues which I, I, I think are worth uh, uh, pointing <coughs> out. First, what, what Tony said about looking at 
both the debt, the public debt and the public assets is, I think, extremely important. And uh, uh, I think too often when we talk about the public debt, we do as if uh, you didn't have assets uh, uh, on, the, on the other side of the balance sheet. And I think it's impossible to look at the history of debt without looking at the history of capital and the history of assets. You need to look at the entire balance sheet. And I, I think it's important to realize that a big part of the post-war uh, growth regime came from the ability of government in, in Britain, but in, uh, also in, in France and Germany and in, in many countries, to invest in public infrastructure, to make investment. And the way it happened is that governments uh, all across Europe and, and in many other parts of the world were able to get rid of their public debt in the 50s, 60s, a huge public debt, you know, in many cases uh, over 200% uh, of GDP, certainly in Britain, but also in, in France and Germany in 1945, the public debt was over 200% of GDP. And then it was reduced uh, very quickly in France and Germany. It took a bit more time in, in Britain because Britain was a bit more averse to inflation. But in the end, uh, in, the end in, every, in all of these countries, you know, the public debt was reduced very quickly. And this is what helped build uh, this positive net public worth and this ability of the government to make investment and to, to, uh, to be part of the growth and development process. And it's, uh, it's in particular France and Germany, uh, they reduced their debt from 200% of GDP in 1945 to less than 20% in 1950, 1955. And of course, this could never have happened just simply by uh, uh, reimbursing the debt through uh, 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 primary budget surplus. So otherwise, you would need surplus of you know 30% of GDP each year, which of course nobody has ever done. And so it's it's a bit ironical that these two countries, uh, France and Germany, would never reimburse their public debt in the post-war period. You know, are now explaining uh, Southern Europe <laughs> that uh, they should reimburse their public debt with zero inflation, uh, zero debt repudiation, whereas. Uh, this is what France and Germany did in the post-war period, and this was an important part of the policies, which uh, these were good policies, because in the end, so there was inflation, there was a lot of debt restructuring, you know, as we know, the, 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 the exter external debt of Germany was, uh, was uh, cancelled, brought down to zero in the famous... Uh, London Agreement of 1953, but it was more generally there was a, a mixture of uh, debt repudiation, uh, inflation, exceptional measures which allowed for this quick reduction of the public debt, and that was an important part of the post-war um, uh, development uh, strategy, and, and, and this is what allowed the uh, public sector to play its role. So I think it's important to have this broad uh, historical view, uh, not only on public debt, but on public assets. Uh, it's, this is not saying that there are easy solutions. You know, there's no easy solution. Inflation is a complicated solution, which has all of bad consequences as well. But the, the general lesson from history is that there are always alternatives. You know, it's not true that there's just one way to reduce the public debt. You know, when you look at history, you find a mixture of ways in, in France, in Germany, in Britain. Britain in the 19th century decided to reimburse its public debt with zero inflation, uh, no default, and it also worked. It's just that it took an entire century. It took an entire century of budget surplus from 1815 to 1910 to reduce a public debt of 200% of GDP after the Napoleonic War to... Uh, uh, 20 or 30 percent of GDP in 1910, uh, one century of budget surplus during which 
uh, in effect, uh, there was more taxpayer money in Britain used to reimburse the public debt to uh, those who own the public debt, and it's not only in Jane Austen novels that you see uh, interest payment, you know, it's uh, in the real uh, uh, public finance uh, of, of Britain in the 19th century, and during an entire century there was more taxpayer money to repay interest than all the resources that were invested in the entire uh, education system uh, of the country, which maybe was not the best way to prepare the next uh, century. And, and I think it's a serious concern that we might do a similar mistake today. Uh, I guess even more in Eurozone countries than maybe than in Britain, where we, are, we stick to uh, zero inflation uh, uh, to an extent which I think is dangerous. So in any case, my you know, first point I wanted to make is I think Tony's emphasis on public assets, public debt is very important, and, and Tony's emphasis on the need to take uh, this historical approach to this question is very important. Let me now come to uh, two specific proposals that are made by uh, Tony about the inheritance tax and the property tax or the council tax, local council tax, which I think are very important because they illustrate what is so important in Tony's book, uh, which is the spirit of, uh, I think, uh, hope and optimism. You know, the idea that you, the, the, we can still do a lot at the national level. You know, even if you don't have a perfect international cooperation, uh, there are policies uh, like uh, inheritance tax reform, uh, council tax reform, and, and many other reforms that are proposed in the Tony's book, which can be done here and now in Britain or in other countries and many of the recommendations uh, made by Tony can be applied elsewhere and in the end you know which uh, narrative will become dominant uh, uh, can change uh, I think in the in the in the future uh, it's uh, it's really uh, there's no decisive argument uh, you know uh, uh, saying that we cannot do this kind of reform at the national level so at the the very interesting proposal made by Tony regarding the inheritance tax and I think it will be interesting to conduct survey uh, at LSE or in other places about uh, how uh, uh, people feel about this is to tie the inheritance tax rate to the capital endowments that can be made uh, to everybody at age 18. So the simple computation that, uh, that is proposed by Tony in his book is the following. If you were to, to use the current inheritance tax revenue to finance a capital endowment to everybody at age 18, you know, including people who don't receive any family wealth from their family, then the capital endowment will be around 5,000 pounds or a bit more. And with the inheritance tax proposal that, that you are making, this will be closer to 10,000 pounds, or that will be a target, a possible target for an inheritance tax proposal. Whatever the specific numbers, the, the idea is to relate very clearly uh, uh, you know, what you can get from inheritance tax rate. And uh, I think people's attitude toward inheritance taxations are very complicated. People, of course, feel very negatively about inheritance taxation if you want to tax a lot uh, relatively uh, small or middle uh, uh, property values and wealth. Now, when it's very progressive, uh, then people have very different feelings. And when it's tied to an endowment for all uh, adults, uh, you know, I think the attitude, I think the framing effects and the way you, you, you tie the different parts of the reform are very important uh, uh, in order to, 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 to change uh, perception and attitude toward this kind of reform. So I think here the, the proposal made by Tony um, uh, open a very interesting new areas for, uh, for research 
and also political action. The other example I would like to take is regarding the, the property tax or the local council tax. So I must say that here, I, I, by reading Tony, I, I learned something. Well, I learned many things by reading Tony, but in particular, I learned one thing which I did not realize before, which is that the famous poll tax of, of uh, Margaret Thatcher, in a way, has never been abolished. Or more precisely, it has been replaced by a system, the local council tax, which is almost as regressive as the, as the poll tax. So the original poll tax was supposed, you know, in its purest form, was supposed to be the same uh, amount in sterling for everybody. Uh, but in fact, the new system, and there's a graph in Tony's book which illustrates this very well, is very far from being uh, proportional with respect to property value. So typically, when you go from a property worth 100,000 pounds to a property worth 1 million pounds. Your council tax, if I remember well, uh, will move maybe from uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, 1,000 pounds to 2,000 pounds or 3,000 pounds, but will, not, will certainly not increase by a factor of 10. So it's not exactly flat. You know, it increases a little bit, but it increases much less than proportionally with the, with, the, with the value of the property. So it's not even a proportional or flat rate tax, if you want. It's, uh, it's deeply regressive in the sense that the, how much you pay as a, as a, as a, as a fraction of, your, of, your, uh, of the value of your property falls dramatically with the uh, level of your, of your uh, property or wealth. And uh, what, what I find, part and so the obvious proposal made by Tony is, well, at least we should try to get back to a proportional property tax, and then, you know, maybe we can think of a progressive property tax or wealth tax uh, in a second step. But, but we start from a system where, in Britain, where as compared to many other countries, including the US or France, where the property tax is basically proportional, this is uh, deeply regressive in this country, which wh what I find particularly uh, striking is that at the same time, Britain is a country where the tax on real estate uh, transaction is highly progressive, uh, in the sense that when you, you sell a property worth 100,000 pounds, you have a very low, relatively low tax rate, uh, like you know, less than 1% or 2%. And then when you uh, sell a property worth more than 2 million pounds, you, you now pay uh, 7%. And this was first introduced uh, by the, the previous Labour government before Cameron with a 5% tax rate on, on all uh, transactions above 1 million pounds. And at that time, the Conservatives were saying, well, this is... Uh, a catastrophe, don't do that. And when they came into power, they actually created a 7% tax rate for transactions above 2 million pounds, which, in a way, you know, is an element for optimism uh, in, in the sense, well, I know that this is not, you know, this is not much of a time for optimism right now in, in this country, but, but, you know, what, at least what this shows is that, uh, you know, there are evolutions uh, uh, which sometimes can go beyond left or right, which simply, you know, if you have very large uh, uh, property values at the top of the distribution and some people who are seated on, on, on huge uh, property values whereas some other people in particular in the young generation have a very, good, very difficult time to access property it's in a way it's a matter of common sense to ask a little more to, to people at the top of the, of the property scale and what's a bit strange in the case of Britain is that this is what has been happening for the transaction tax but not at all for the annual 
local tax and, uh, you know, I, I don't know, from a French viewpoint, we usually look at Britain as a place, not, maybe not of fiscal rationality, but at least of uh, more uh, pragmatism or less, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, inertia sometimes than in, in France, where we, you know, we have, a, a, you know, an extremely complicated uh, tax system, and we sometimes imagine that Britain is a, is, a, is a bit better, but here, I mean, there's a level of inconsistency between the regressivity of the council tax and the progressivity of the transaction tax, which is very difficult to understand from a, a French viewpoint. But at least what all this discussion shows is that these things can change, and, you know, there's a lot of arbitrariness in the tax system and social systems that we have in the different countries. These are the product of historical circumstances. And, uh, you know, this can, this can change. Uh, this, this is not something that we should take as given. Let me conclude by, by saying that, you know, there are maybe uh, two, uh, only two, um, two criticisms that can be um, addressed to Tony's book. Well, the first one is that it was published too late. That's quite obvious. You know, it was... <laughs> I think, you know, one week before the election is clearly not enough. <laughs> so I think this was a little presumptuous, maybe, Tony, you should have... Uh... So maybe six months before. But on the other hand, you know, I think books can have an impact, you know, have a long-term impact. And, you know, election is only, is only one component of, the, of, of political action and of uh, um, uh, political debate, and, uh, you know, I think the book can, can have a strong impact uh, on, on, you know, whatever the, whatever the election. The, the other criticism that could be made to the book, maybe, is that it's not, it's, it's very much centered on uh, Britain, or at least on proposals that could be made in a country like Britain, which could be France, or which could be another country, but there is not so much in terms of international um, action, and, and in particular, you know, you, you, you know, given the role played by Britain in the world map of tax havens, uh, given, given the role played by Britain in uh, competition over, um, over uh, the corporate tax in, in Europe, you know, you, you would have, you know, I would have expected sort of stronger uh, proposal uh, uh, on this uh, side. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, of course, Britain alone cannot solve this problem, but it would be nice if Britain could do its uh, share, at least. And, and uh, I, I would, uh, you know, I, I would have liked to see a bit more in this direction. On the other hand, you know, this is, of course, the strength of Tony's book is to say, well, look, uh, even if you don't manage to do anything on the international uh, fiscal cooperation front, uh, there is a lot that can be done at the country level. So don't be, you know, don't take the lack of international cooperation as an excuse for not doing anything, and I'm going to show you what can be done uh, here and now at, uh, at, the, at the national level. So this is, in the end, the, the, the biggest uh, strength of the book, which I really uh, strongly uh, advise you to, to read. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we have, uh, we started a little late, um, although it has been a long day, but um, particularly for Thomas, starting from Paris um, and sitting in the tunnel for quite a long time by the sound of it. Um, but I think we have about a quarter of an hour um, to range um, not just over the um, points that have just been made, but other reflections on the day. Um, if you are making them, um, could they be fairly brief? Um, and could you just give us a, a, a small indication of um, where, where, you, where you're from. Um, in the case of former members of parliament, just indicate the part of Scotland you used to, um, you used to represent. 
Um, so we have, uh, we have roving microphones um, at the top and bottom. I can immediately see two people, gentlemen, with a blue shirt there, um, with the white shirt in the middle there, and then um, Lisa in the front row here for a first round of, of questions. So there are a lot of people who want to talk. Please do keep it um, as brief as you can. So, hello, my name is Anton, London School of Economics. So I'm wondering, so you've got the optimistic policy recommendations for a more liberal government or for a more left government, but what are policy recommendations that the conservatives and the government in the next five years would be liable to take or possible to take that would reduce inequality but still, be, still fit in with their larger agenda? Thank you. Yes. Uh, my name is Veronica Torres. I'm from Colombia, and I'm a PhD student in law. Uh, my, my question goes more towards the global inequality, and uh, especially with regards the land acquisitions in the global south, let's say most Latin America and Africa. Um, and uh, we'll see that um, I, I don't see how we can tackle this um, with, for example, tax or education, especially if we see that these lands are being bought by, um, I mean, northern governments and also by international corporations. Which okay, I think oh. we got. I think we got the okay, question. <laughs> I think one of those governments was protesting. Um, uh, uh, hi, uh, Lisa McKenzie from. The LSE, sociology. So I've just said, I said earlier that um, I'm not going to speak to, to uh, policymakers because <laughs> I don't think they would listen to me. But one of the things that I'd like to ask you is how do we, how do we um, tackle policy around stigmatisation? Because the people in my, in my study are stigmatised for who they are and they're just not good enough. And what that means then is when you've got um, the Centre for Social Justice that comes along, they almost, you know, they, they, uh, the rest of the British public are then in agreement with sort of draconian welfare courts. So how do we tackle, you know, something as qualitative as, as stigma? Policies adoptable by conservative governments. Yes, I mean, if any of you saw, um, I think it was last week's, uh, the week before last, Financial Times magazine, uh, you may have seen that Tim Harford uh, started off by saying, I'd produce uh, proposals for a radical Labour government, and then went on to uh, outline things for a radical Conservative government. Uh, I then actually, I, I then said to him afterwards, I said, well, actually, I think you've been a bit unfair, because several of the things under his radical Conservative agenda were actually among my proposals. Uh, and I said, I think you should just remove the word labor from my... Let's say I had a radical proposals, not that uh, they were radical labor ones. For example, I mean, one... I'll just give two examples. One is that I was quite concerned um, that all the discussion about the distribution of wealth in this country has focused on the top uh, and not on the bottom, that is, on why people don't have wealth. And one simple answer why people haven't got much wealth is that the rate of return to their savings, or small savings have been negative in real terms since for the last five years or so. Now, it seemed to me that's uh, clearly not helping. As it were. Their R is considerably less than G, uh, to put it in my neighbour's uh, vocabulary. And indeed, someone actually wrote to me and said, what is this man on about, R being greater than G? 
I haven't made any money on my savings for five years. Um, and I think that's an example where we used to have index-linked bonds in this country. Uh, they were withdrawn, I think, somewhere in, was about four or five years ago and have not been reissued. And I think reissuing index-linked bonds would be a natural step, I would have thought, for a Conservative Chancellor to take, for example. That is, trying to redress wealth inequality by adding to the savings at the bottom with limits. I think we wouldn't be allowed, as it were, on a, without limit. The second example I'll take is one which, he, uh, which Tim proposed, which was some form of citizen's income. Uh, I mean, he, he had a more even more radical proposal than mine, and since he wanted to abolish all other social security, I wouldn't do that for a number of good reasons. Um, I think that, uh, well, I'll go into, but some form of citizens, rather, or basic income uh, would be a way of resolving what I think are the very inherent problems with our current social security system, which has become heavily dependent on income testing, means testing, uh, we, I think it's 22 million people in the country are, face, are paying income, are receiving income-tested benefits, which is a, a really staggering figure. And it's very different from the original intention of the report drawn up by Sir William Beveridge in 1942. And the plan for Social Security was a plan for social insurance. And he was quite vocal on the subject that he wished to see this replacing social assistance, the means-tested uh, public assistance, the old poor law, which brings me to Lisa's question. Um, sorry, you'll blow my eyes. Because uh, I think that one element, it's only one element, but one element in the problem you identified is the fact that um, means-tested benefits are administered in a different way and are not regarded as in any sense return for contributions. And unlike many of my economist friends, I think contributions are actually important, partly because they legitimise precisely these transfers. And so I think that if we had a system of social transfers that was not uh, a derivative of the old poor law, and there's a direct line running down from that through to current uh, income support and job seekers' allowance, if we had a system which went back to one which provided benefits which are either justified by contributions or by virtue of citizenship or something similar, then I think it would remove one of the elements of stigma. I think there's only one, and I think a lot of other things too, but it would, I think, help. Um, well, as, as I mentioned in my, um, in my presentation, if you, if, you take, um, if you take what actually happened to... Uh, uh, the taxation of property. In fact, it was, uh, a, you know, the previous conservative government which actually created the, uh, you know, higher bracket for uh, for property values above two million pounds. After they criticized uh, the Labour government who first introduced it when they were uh, when they were in opposition. So I think, you know, they should just keep moving in this direction. But uh, it's uh, it's it's uh, you know it's. It, Sometimes you have you have uh, discourse, you have you have uh, you have reality. I, I think in the end it will be uh, perfectly consistent with uh, what uh, what the conservative uh, uh, party pretends to be doing and, and the social groups that they pretend to be defending to move toward a system, a tax system in particular that allows uh, uh, groups with uh, no family wealth. 
to access property just through their labor income. So one way to, to uh, facilitate this is exactly what Tony indicated. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, I think it's important to stress that uh, financial deregulation has increased uh, probably uh, very substantially the inequality in access to high financial returns. So the gap between R and G might not be huge on average, but for some people it is a lot higher than for some other people for whom the rate of return has been very low indeed. So I think that's one way to, to correct this. And moving toward a more progressive uh, tax system for property is also a way to facilitate uh, new groups entering property. For If you take the corporate tax, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, it's clear that you know, the, the, if we keep just competing with one another uh, in terms of uh, you know, European countries, we will have uh, you know, 10 years from now, the corporate tax rate will be uh, 10 percent, then 5 percent, then 0 percent, and then what, what will we do? You know, are we going to subsidize uh, firms so that they come and invest? So, you know, everybody, including the Cameron government, has been compl complaining uh, after the, the Luxembourg leaks uh, scandal at the end of 2014. But, you know, there will be other Luxembourg leaks uh, scandal if we don't do anything. So I think even... A conservative government, you know, should uh, should try to 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 contribute to more um, uh, uh, transparency about uh, what uh, you know how multinationals report their their profits and more transparency regarding uh, register of cross-border financial assets. And sometimes, uh, you know, government uh, don't do what we uh, expect them to do. Uh, if you take, you know, in the case of Spain, it was. Uh, a socialist government which uh, repealed the wealth tax, which was then reintroduced by the Rajoy government who was on the right. So I think it's, uh, it's um, um, you know, we, we, we can, uh, we, we, you know, we should uh, just push, try to push in the right direction and things can happen even when we don't uh, expect them. Uh, regarding the, the other questions on global uh, inequality and, and uh, land purchase, I you know, I, I think it will be a mistake uh, to, uh, you know, we should stop uh, believing and saying that restrictions uh, are impossible and that we should always have, uh, you know, free uh, uh, um, uh, buying of, uh, of national assets by foreigners, free capital flows. You know, if you, if you don't have international coordination on, on, on uh, regarding uh, uh, transparency, who owns what, if you don't have minimal international coordination on taxation, then having completely free uh, possibility to purchase assets in different countries and, and free capital flows is, I think, a big, uh, a big uh, mistake and, uh, and is very naive. And so I think in some cases the only way to, uh, to avoid this is to have uh, restrictions on who who can buy what. Thank you very much. I thought you were in danger of saying just then that sometimes governments don't do what they say they were going to do. Um, I'm going to take three more, and then we will have to wind up. Um, so Tim Besley there um, was first. Um, there's a gentleman right at the back in black, and, and your neighbor. So take those two at the back. Sorry, luck of the draw to everybody. Okay, I'd like to join up the discussion a little bit to something that was said in the very first session this morning. But if, if you look, I think John was right to tee up the discussion in terms of the, the recent election. But I think it's also important to realize the amount of continuity there has been in policy, including the previous Labour government. 
meaning that they had an opportunity to do something about non-DOMs did nothing. They had an opportunity to revalue the council tax in 2005. They, bought, they abandoned that. They certainly did nothing towards the progressive um, introduction of wealth taxation. Indeed, they, they began, I think, to be terif terrified of doing so. In other words, there's a kind of social norm out here that our country has evolved, which says we are unwilling to say we're going to tax middle-income people to provide better state services. And until that norm changes and evolves, we're not going to have a fundamentally different system here. We're going to pretend that we can run an election campaign taking money from pockets of the rich and provide better public services. There's a real need to, to shift the norm in the debate and to shift the norm in society. And all we're seeing in, in the election we've just seen is a reflection of an evolved norm in which people will not speak up for that strategy. Hello. Hi. Um, my name is Alex, University of Greenwich. Um, I have two very short questions. We've talked about um, the role of the declining wage share and the role it plays in inequality. And I was wondering whether you could say a couple of words about the debate around this measure and um, the arguments, for example, put forward by Romney recently about whether to account for depreciation or not and whether this has an effect on whether the wage share is actually declining or not. And my second question relates to the ro role of the housing sector. Um, and it's, it is being outlined as a new field of, of source of inequality and of struggle. And whether you could say something about the new institutional analysis we need in order to account for the erosion and bargaining power in this sector and how it relates to inequality. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, your neighbor. And if you could make it just one question. <laughs> Um, hi everyone, thanks very much for the presentations. Uh, my question is very <laughs> close to his, so maybe I'm making like one question from his and all. Um, so Bob Rothorn presented that housing is currently 60% of wealth in the EU and 40% in the US. My question relates to your policy suggestion about property and inheritance taxes. How probable is it that these taxes are going to increase the supply of housing or provide an incentive for more people to have better access to housing or have the opposite effect and exaggerate the fact that the landowners and the property class are going to charge higher rents? And what does this mean in the time of our amazing prospect of five years of this conservative government? Thank you. So let me let me say very clearly that housing, uh, you know, the rise of housing values is indeed a very important part of the rise uh, in the overall uh, wealth to income ratio that I that I uh, document and study in my book. In, indeed, in some countries, it's more than 100 percent of the rise. So there is no uh, disagreement about this. I, I, I fully agree that the, the rise of housing values is a very important part of the issue. Now, is this good news for inequality? Uh, well, probably not, because indeed uh, what, what this has implied, what the rise of housing values has, has implied, is that it's very difficult uh, for, uh, in particular for the young generation who don't have family wealth to access property. Okay, so if you only have your labor income and you want to become an owner in, in London or Paris, uh, you have probably noticed that uh, this will have to be a very high labor income. So, you know, it's not impossible, but in my book, I, I, I try to look at different generations 
and look at what I call the Rastignac dilemma, comparing you know, how much, uh, what is the purchasing power of top labor earners or different groups in the labor earning distribution as compared to the purchasing power of different groups in the distribution of inherited wealth. And you have a return of the importance of inheritance which comes together these very high property values, which is, uh, which is I think, a problem for our uh, sort of meritocratic ideal of uh, where, uh, you know, people should be able to access property just on the basis of uh, labor income. Now, what, what can we do about this? I think it's a mixture of policy. You know, I think taxation is important, but, you know, I think there are many other policies uh, uh, regarding uh, facilitating uh, construction in some cases which are very important. So, you know, the problem to housing uh, uh, will, will be solved by a mixture of policy. Um, uh, now, taxation is also important, even though it's not the only solution. So, in particular, the... the, the you know, when you are in... A, when you live at a time where the, the total wealth values, particularly because of housing, relative to GDP or national income are uh, six, seven years of GDP as opposed to two, three years of GDP in 1970, then I think it's a matter of common sense that we should probably uh, tax uh, labor income uh, uh, a bit less and tax property values and inherited wealth a bit more. You know, it's not, it's not zero one, but you want to move the tax system in a direction that will uh, sort of compensate for some of the underlying evolution in economic fundamentals, okay? not to rather than exacerbate it. Okay? So you probably want to have a bit more uh, tax on inheritance. On, on property and annual wealth tax, let, let me make clear that what I have in mind is not so much, it's not a total, uh, an overall increase in the, the, the tax burden uh, paid by uh, property or wealth or capital, but rather to make it more progressive. So the, the proposal will be to reduce the property tax paid by uh, households with low uh, net worth. And, you know, in some cases, uh, negative net worth when you have a very high mortgage and a low uh, property value, uh, and to increase it at the upper end. So the, the, the objective is certainly not to, uh, to uh, you know, to, to overtax property in general, but just to allow for more mobility, to allow for people with no initial wealth to, to access more wealth. And I, I, I think it's clear that up to a certain point, this will uh, uh, increase uh, uh, mobility of wealth, reduce concentration of wealth uh, without affecting uh, the total quantity of wealth. And if anything, this will, uh, this will uh, you know, increase, increasing access to property uh, will be good for, for total accumulation of, of capital and, um, and, um, and, and wealth. Now, you know, I think some of the some of the reason why why this kind of tax have proved to be difficult to reform in the past have to do with the lack of uh, you know to some extent this tax should be more um, uh, indexed to asset values than they should be. So in the case of the inheritance tax, uh, you know what happens in many countries is that you don't change the tax bracket during 20 years or sometimes 30 years, and then suddenly you realize that you have, uh, you know, 30% of the population paying high tax instead of 1%. And then uh, you wonder why people are unhappy. And, and then, so, you know, I think it's important as a rule to index your, your, your tax bracket. And if you really want more people to pay the tax because of a general increase in property values, maybe this makes sense, but this should be explained. You should explain why you do that. 
you should not just let inflation and in particular asset price inflation do the job because otherwise at some point you have a backlash and then it's easy for our government and maybe the current government to suddenly increase the threshold for inheritance tax to a level that is maybe excessive so you have overshooting in adjustment and uh, I, I think you know we've had that in France also under uh, Sarkozy in 2007 the inheritance tax system had not been changed in nominal terms between 1984 and 2007 so of course given the increase in real estate values uh, you know 20 years before, you had 1% of the population paying a certain tax rate, and 20 years later, you have 20% of the population. So people are unhappy you know, if you don't explain why you are changing the tax system this way. So this, this are, uh, I think that's part of the reason why, why reforming this has been difficult. Tony, changing well, the norms and uh, debate? Yes, I have a very straightforward answer. I, I, I agree. <laughs> Well, I agree. <laughs> well. No, I agree as well. But on the other hand, maybe, Tim, just to bring a little bit of disagreement, I, I'm not sure he, he should not be, you know, saying this should not be used as an excuse for, you know, uh, you know, concluding that we cannot have different policies, even given the existing norms. You know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's wrong to assume that there's only one, uh, you know, tax policy. You know, I think what I like, one, one problem, you know, maybe to conclude with a personal note, you know, one problem I had with the re more recent Merlis review of taxation is that I think it was a, a bit too, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, under the, the general idea that there's only one, one policy that can be followed. And at least uh, Tony's book, I think, is showing that there is, uh, you know, even for a given country, Britain, with a given set of academic knowledge, uh, you know, we can... There are different choices that can be proposed, and I think it's important for public debate to, you know, to make this clear. Thank you all very much. I'm sorry. I think we should bring this uh, to a close in the next few minutes. I do have a couple of things to say, though, by way of announcement. Um, the first thing is to say, um, in particular, a huge um, amount of thanks to the British Journal of Sociology, um, both for supporting this event, but also for publishing the symposium, which... Um, which led to it. Um, we should thank um, Anna Johnston, her colleagues in sociology, um, who've organized what was really quite a complex event. Um, we should um, thank um, all of our speakers. I'm not going to go through, go through their names. Um, in case you've missed anything um, during the day, uh, this will all be, and that includes Tom in terms of the first session, um, uh, thanks to Eurostar, um, this um, will all be available in uh, probably 48 hours or so. Um, it will be available online with the slides um, on, the, um, on the LSE website. Um, I should also uh, make one announcement, um, which is that the next event being supported by the new institute is a lecture which um, Joseph Stiglitz is giving next Tuesday evening, I think at 6.30, I think here. Um, now, tickets for that um, are expected to be in some demand. Um, members of LS LSE students and LSE staff um, can um, get one ticket each, I think, from the Students' Union shop in Houghton Street. I hope I'm not misleading people um, from tomorrow morning. Um, and others um, can um, get tickets online from 6 p.m. Um, tomorrow evening. 
Um, that lecture will also, for those of you watching the video cast um, afterwards, uh, that lecture will also be available um, by video cast. Um, but finally, just could, um, could we join in thanking, I think, two people who have done more than um, anybody else in the academic world to change um, some of the norms of this debate. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.